Today's speaker is Nick Bunker. He has had a diverse career in finance and journalism, working as an investigative reporter for the Liverpool Echo, an investment banker, and as a reporter for the Financial Times. He was an open scholar at King's College in Cambridge, where he won two university prizes. He has also obtained two graduate degrees from Columbia University in New York. For many years, he served as a board member, treasurer, and chairman of the trustees um, at the Freud Museum in London. Um, and today, in his strong but even-handed narrative, uh, An Empire on Edge, How Britain Came to Fight America, um, Bunker tells the story of three years of deepening anger that led to the outbreak of America's War for Independence at Lexington in 1775. Using primary sources from both sides of the Atlantic, Bunker sheds light on the Tea Party's origins and the process of mutual embitterment by which Britain and America pushed each other into war. So join me in welcoming Nick Bunker. Good, well, thank you very much indeed. Um, Whenever I get up to speak in public, uh, I'm always reminded of a story uh, about the British uh, actor, the British Shakespearean actor, Sir Donald Sindon, who sadly passed away just uh, a few weeks ago at the age of 90. And he famously played uh, King Lear at Stratford-on-Avon in uh, 1976. It was actually the first time I ever saw Lear perform myself. And a few days later, uh, he was interviewed by a journalist from The, from the Guardian, uh, Michael Billington, who, uh, who said to uh, Donald Sindon, uh, Donald, um, it's a very challenging role, King Lear. What is the most challenging feature of the role? And Sindon said, Dewey said, um, the most challenging thing about playing King Lear is that it's a very long time till you get to the first laugh. <laughs> and, now, I hope there'll be one or two laughs today, um, although it is quite a serious book. Um, now, I'm delighted to be here, as I say, uh, not least because I'm extremely fond of the town of Boston. Um, as I was walking across the common on the way here, looking up at the State House, uh, it occurred to me that it's probably the seventh time, I think it's the seventh time that I've been here in the space of the last eight years. I usually try to spend um, about a month here in the fall each year for research purposes and so on. Boston is a town that I'm very fond of, but it's also, I think, a town that's actually quite hard to get to know. And it's very easy to resort to cliches when, when talking about the town of Boston and its role in the revolution. And a little bit later in the, in the talk, I'll be reading a section of the book, uh, a section from a chapter called Massachusetts on the Eve, in which I try to give what I think is, is um, as evocative a description as I can of Boston uh, at that period. Not just the physical characteristics of Boston, but also the cultural characteristics of Boston, which, as I say, I think are, um, are rather less easier to define than, than it's often thought. However, before I do that, I just want to talk a little bit about the book in general. Now, An Empire on the Edge, uh, How Britain Came to Fight America, uh, covers a lot of ground. Um, in terms of time, it covers the last three and a half to four years before the outbreak of the war at Lexington and Concord on April the 19th, 1775. That's where the book ends. I don't then proceed forward into the military history of the war, partly because I'm not a military historian. I think that requires certain special talents, which I don't necessarily possess. So the book deals really with the, with the, the period of the, of the onset of deepening antagonism between uh, Britain and its American colonies. It actually begins in the West. Uh, and the reason it begins in the West by the Mississippi is for two reasons. Partly it's because at that particular moment, it was the West that was really giving the authorities in London the most cause for concern about America. Their great concern being the, the, the resumption of hostilities in the West. They were concerned about the, the uh, breakout, potential breakout of a general Indian war. 
And although it's often thought that, if you like, the French and Indian War, or what we call the Seven Years' War, had settled the issue of, of the West, it hadn't really done so. Uh, the British were continually concerned that the French might return. They were concerned that the Spanish, of course, were still across the Mississippi. Uh, and they were concerned about the possibility that the movement of settlers to the West would lead to a general Indian war which would require the commitment of a very large British ground force, which is something they were very reluctant to commit for obvious financial reasons. So that's one of the reasons why the book begins there. It also begins there because the westernmost outpost of the British Empire at the time, a place called Fort de Chartres, still had its French name, was a particularly interesting place. Um, it was a fort that the French had constructed uh, by the Mississippi to effectively try and guide their lines, lines of communication. It was taken over by the British in the middle 760s, and then it fell apart, essentially. It had been built too close to the river, and uh, the, the various floods uh, along the Mississippi eventually led to its destruction. The book begins there because that effectively is used in the book as a kind of metaphor for the process of dissolution of the British Empire in America in general. The book then proceeds forward uh, into an account of the East India Company. Uh, the very heart of the book is an account of the Boston Tea Party, uh, but the Boston Tea Party is seen, if you like, from a British perspective. That is to say, I want to get at exactly why the British sent the tea to America, what the problems were in the East India Company that led to their accumulation of vast surpluses of tea, and to what, if you like, was the inner dynamic of the East India Company. So a sizable portion of the book deals with that. It deals with the question of what it was exactly about the East India Company which caused uh, it to accumulate these substantial excess stocks of tea and to find itself in a financial crisis. And I argue this was something very fundamental, that fundamentally the British Empire at the time was really a commercial empire, not a political empire. It was a commercial empire founded upon the exploitation of flows of commodities, tea, sugar, tobacco, and so on. And that being so, essentially, it was intrinsically an unstable empire. I actually call it an empire of speculation. So there's a whole section of the book called an empire of speculation, which deals with that feature of the British Empire. And, of course, this is something which actually has become more topical um, as, as, the, uh, as, as time goes by. The book then proceeds to deal with an incident which I regard as of great importance, which was the raid on the gas bay, the attack on the gas bay. This was the, uh, the Royal Navy warship that was destroyed in, in the Providence River on June the 9th and 10th, 1772, uh, by the people of Rhode Island. That's an incident which I regard as being a very pivotal incident. Uh, it was pivotal because effectively it poisoned the official mind in London. Now, the officials in London had for years uh, been concerned about the possibility uh, of a movement towards independence in America. There were some people in London as far back as the Stamp Act Rats who were convinced that that was what Americans were bent upon doing. But the Gas Bay Raid came at a time when, to some extent, those fears had been subsiding. There had been a period of calm which the Gas Bay Raid interrupted. And that's this section of the book, as I say, deals with the Gas Bay Raid in some detail because I think it's so important, and it was effectively the start of the countdown towards the war. Then the book deals with the, the politics in London to explain exactly how and why the British found themselves in the situation of sending the tea to America, and I deal extensively with the question of distraction. One of the problems was that, while in America, the British were essentially focused on the West rather than on the East, in London itself, they were actually more focused, of course, upon Europe. The difficulty for the British in 1772-72 to 3 was that Europe seemed to be on the brink of a war as well. Again, it's important to bear in mind that the Seven Years' War of 1756 to 63, which is often seen by some historians as being a decisive and shaping event, wasn't actually seen like that by the British at the time. On the contrary, the British believed that there was almost certainly going to be another general European war very soon afterwards. 
And there's a very revealing memorandum that was written in November 1772 by Lord Rochford, who was the really number two in the British government. He was the premier secretary of state uh, dealing with relations with France and Spain in particular. And Rochford, if I can find the um, quotation, somewhere here. In November 1772, he wrote a memo to his colleagues, which was intended to sum up as clearly as possible the... Um, yeah, the situation of Europe. And he actually wrote this, November 12, 1772, at a time when the count walked down to war was re-beginning, just starting in the US, in, in what is now the United States. The situation of Europe, wrote Lord Rochford, at this very instant of time is become so critical that it is the essential duty of administration to give their whole attention to it. And that remained the British position right through until the middle of, until the news arrived at the Boston Tea Party in 1774. Rochford says, we have not a single friend or ally to boast of. In the North, Russia, Prussia and Vienna have recently agreed in the most arbitrary and tyrannical manner to dismember Poland. The consequences of that invasion may take many years to bear fruit. The revolution in Sweden, brought about by the money and intrigues of France, is a proof how much that meddling court endeavours to exert our influence. Let us remember that France has not forgot her losses in the last war, that she regrets the total decay of her India trade and would infallibly turn her thoughts to recover it. Now that effectively is a very good appraisal of exactly what the British government were thinking privately at the end of 1772 and during 1773. They said if that was private, in public, Lord North, the Prime Minister, and Rochford and his colleagues would tend to be much more optimistic. Uh, they would tend to downplay the threat from France and they would tend to to, to strike a very optimistic note uh, of optimism in the, in the strength, especially the financial strength of the British Empire. But in private, this is what they actually thought. Now, given those attitudes that they had and given that that was their principal concern, it's not so surprising, really, that they failed to spot exactly what was starting to unfold before their eyes in Massachusetts in particular, but also in other parts of the uh, 13 colonies. The book then goes on to deal with the actual Tea Party and narrate the, the story of the Tea Party itself, and then, of course, to dis discuss the slide into war that occurred during 1774 and 1775. But because we're in Boston, I'd like to focus, really, for the rest of the talk on the question of Massachusetts itself and how I came to grips with writing about the town of Boston. Now, my feeling about Boston is, is the following. Uh, this is a town, of course, that is, that is hugely literary. I mean, there is an enormous amount of literature that focuses on the town of Boston. Uh, in my case, for example, whenever I walk across the common, I always think of the poems of Robert Lowell, from the, from the 1950s and 1960s, uh, particularly his poem, For the Union Dead, which you may know, which, which actually describes the, the common. It describes the period when the underground car parks are being excavated around, uh, around the center of Boston. And of course, he describes in some detail um, the, the Civil War monument that faces the state house. So I always think of Lowell's poem, poem For the Union Dead. If I'm in Back Bay, I tend to think about Henry James, because the Bostonians is set partly, I think, in Back Bay, when the Back Bay was very new. And there are other things that one come, that come to mind, literary allusions in Boston. For example, uh, these days, bringing things up to date, of course, Scorsese is from The Departed. It's hard to walk around Boston these days, frankly, without feeling you're somehow in a scene from The Departed, however far-fetched some of the film may actually be. And indeed, I mean, curious enough, some, in, in, in the course of the book, I discussed the Brattle Square Church, uh, which, of course, was a very important institution in 18th century Boston. And I was amused when watching The Departed, of course, to notice that one of the scenes of The Departed early on in the film, uh, where Matt Damon comes out of the, the state police headquarters, is actually set on the site of where the Brattle Church was located. <laughs> That's rather you know, ironic. Um, 
But the trouble with all this sort of thing is that actually it's not really very helpful. It's important to try and discard these kinds of allusions and these kinds of references when one's trying to get at Boston, because Boston's a town about which it's easy to speak in cliches, either backward-looking cliches or forward-looking cliches. What I mean by backward-looking cliches is, for example, the Puritan legacy. Now, it's very easy when, when looking at the American Revolutionary Crisis and studying the situation in Boston in the 1770s, I think, to fall into the trap of thinking that somehow or other there was a Puritan legacy here and that was somehow or other what the war was all about. That somehow or other the Puritan idealism of the 17th century was also driving the revolutionary movement of the 1770s. Now, there's some truth in that. It was a Puritan legacy, but things had moved on. The reality is when you start looking into the, to the details of religious life in Boston in the 1760s and 1770s, when one actually starts studying the sermons that were preached and reading the books, people like Samuel Cooper, things had moved on. Uh, the Puritan legacy was still there, but what was actually in gestation was something very different, which is the Unitarianism of the 19th century that became so dominant in the town, something which is actually in a way less familiar now than Puritanism because scholars devoted a great deal of attention to Puritanism but rather less to Unitarianism, partly because Unitarianism was never as much of a rigid doctrine and creed, so it's actually more difficult to write about. So it's dangerous to get too hung up on the Puritan legacy. Another danger, of course, is to fall into what they call the forward-looking cliché about Boston and to think that it was a town full of immigrants, that it was a melting pot, cosmopolitan, full of immigrants. Well, of course, in the 1770s, it wasn't really. In fact, one of the defining features of Boston in the 1770s was precisely the fact that the population of the town had stagnated for many years. It had been wedged around about 16 or 17,000 for some considerable length of time, so the town wasn't actually receiving huge floods of immigrants. People were entering the port. They were coming in on ships from, 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 from Great Britain, and in particular, in the 1770s, there was the beginning of a surge of immigration from the highlands of Scotland and from Ireland. Irish Presbyterians leaving Ireland for one reason or another, Scots leaving the highlands of Scotland because they were being thrown off the land at the beginning of the clearances. They were arriving, but they weren't necessarily staying in Boston. They were going elsewhere. Or they were going down to Philadelphia and south and to Charleston and so on and so forth. So it wasn't really a town full of immigrants. And that's another cliche one has to get away from. There's another problem, of course, here, which is that uh, we don't actually have very many really good physical descriptions of Boston as it was in the early 1770s. Uh, what I mean by that is physical descriptions written by individuals at the time. The British, for example, didn't write down physical descriptions of Boston. It's quite striking. Uh, there were a lot of British people in Boston, of course, in 1774-5, most of whom, of course, were British soldiers or officers in the British Army or, indeed, sailors. And they wrote letters back home. And they have, some of these letters are very interesting, very important. And I came across a very interesting case of letters, for example, in the National Archives of Scotland by Colonel Leslie, who was the commander of the British Army in Boston on the night of the Tea Party. But he never wrote about the town of Boston itself in any physical way, nor did he write very essentially about the culture. The letters were essentially ranting tirades about the wickedness of the evil of the evil agitators <coughs> led by Samuel Adams, including a rather entertaining, his rather entertaining suggestion they should all be dragged off back to London and hanged from Tyburn Tree. I think is what he said. Um, that's the kind of thing the British would write. Now, there are descriptions of Boston written by French officers who arrived during the war later on. And they're much better, actually, because they're much more sympathetic. And that's the kind of thing one has to use. So actually, getting at Boston in the 1770s, I don't think is as easy as it, as it, as it, as it seems. Um, there is, of course, an excellent website now, um, Boston 1775, run by J.L. Bell, which has gone an enormous way towards, I think, solving this particular problem. But in my case, what I wanted to get at was something else. I wanted to get at how Boston would have looked to a British visitor 
if, let's say, Samuel Johnson or Boswell or someone had turned up, and Boswell would have been a very good visitor to Boston, if they had turned up, what would they have made of Boston? And the reason I'm interested in that is because then we can get some idea about what the cultural and political divisions between the two societies really were. And so what I want to do is to read the section of the book which deals with this. And I'll just have to explain a little bit about it first. This is uh, from a chapter called Massachusetts on the Eve, uh, chapter 8. Starts, my section starts 170. And this particular section has a subtitle. It's subtitled The Leipzig of America. Uh, now, what that's all about is the fact that um, I do make some parallels here between the revolutionary crisis in Boston of 74 to 5 and what occurred in, in the fall of the former uh, German Democratic Republic in 1989 to 1990. And the reason I do that is partly because I think there are some, some interesting parallels, but also because that's the only revolutionary situation I've ever actually seen myself. Because at that particular point, um, I was in Germany uh, briefly for the Financial Times between the fall of the Berlin Wall and the um, uh, German reunification. So I actually did have the opportunity to travel quite extensively in East Germany, meet people who had taken part in effectively in a revolution, and so it's the one that I actually have some experience experience of. And I make some parallels in the book between the situation in Boston and what occurred in Leipzig rather than Berlin. Leipzig being, of course, the place where the, um, the collapse of the Honecker regime actually began in the summer of 1989. So as I say, it's called the Leipzig of America. And what I'll do is I'm going to slightly edit it down, this section, because it's, it's quite long. <clears throat> in the eyes of an English visitor, Boston might have seemed familiar, despite its modest proportions. With fewer than 17,000 inhabitants, it fell far behind Liverpool or Bristol, which were roughly twice as large, while nearly a million lived in London. But they all had the same winding streets, and they had steeples, wharves, and taverns that looked very similar. Even the Boston slums resembled those of a seaboard in England. As he approached the town by sea, a new arrival would initially feel quite at home. But only very briefly, as soon as he stepped ashore, an English visitor would start to discover that the town had a culture quite unlike his own. The British found Boston strange and exasperating. Since the Puritan era, when the Bay Colony came into being, their way of life in England had moved on as Britain became a nation thoroughly commercial in its values. Old issues of faith and politics that remained alive in Massachusetts had either ceased to fascinate the British or the debate about them in the mother country had developed in a very different way. Meanwhile, Boston had evolved as well, steering its own distinctive path until by the 1770s, it was almost a foreign town becoming more un-English with each passing year. Sadly, the British rarely recorded their physical impressions of the place. Far better accounts were written in the 1780s by French military officers who saw the region with a more friendly eye. In the letters home from Admiral Montague and other Britons, all we find are complaints about the locals, about the lack of money and supplies, or about the sorry state of Castle William. As the empire fell to pieces, they had no time for the niceties of observation. But in a happier period ten years earlier, a young naval officer came to Boston and painted some fine watercolours. He was Lieutenant Richard Byron, the poet's great-uncle. From his pictures and from the archives that remain, we can recreate the town and its culture as they would have appeared to a fair-minded Briton just before the war. Told us there weren't too many fair-minded Britons in Boston. Of course, that is the problem with this. But um, the setting was attractive, even beautiful, a blend of the urban and the rural, with meadows, gardens, and orchards reaching deep into the heart of the built-up area. 
Nature had given Boston the undulating terrain the Georgians loved so much and recorded in their paintings. So Byron produced a study in the picturesque. The town sat on a peninsula between the harbour and the mudflats of Back Bay in a basin surrounded by green hills. In 1764, the lieutenant climbed to the top and drew the town from many different viewpoints. A gifted amateur, by luck or by judgment, he chose to highlight landmarks that the revolution would make famous. I'm just going to skip the next section. It simply describes the appearance of, of physical appearance of, of Boston from Dorchester round to um, Bunker Hill. So much for the landscape. Let us imagine that another English visitor arrived in the autumn of 1772 as events began to converge towards the revolution. From the moment he passed the Admiral's flagship and landed at the Long Wharf, he would begin to feel slightly out of place in a town that looked familiar but whose way of life was alien. Because the water was shallow, the wharf was really a pier, stretching a third of a mile out into the harbour. Here, as in Providence or London, an English visitor would find the usual smells from rope walks, distilleries, factories for soap, and scattered heaps of sewage on the mud. Once on dry land, he would see before him a spacious avenue, lined with tall buildings painted white and cream, with signs above their doors that spoke of loyalty. On the right, there was a place to drink coffee called The Crown, and then another, the British Coffee House further up the avenue. Known as King Street, just like an equivalent street in the city of London, which sloped up from the waterfront in exactly the same way, it led towards the seat of government. Built of red brick, with the royal coat of arms above the door, the old Boston State House might have come from any harbour town in eastern England. Behind it was a prison newly built of stone next to the workhouse, similar to those I've visited you at home. Around the corner, he would see a church that looked as though it had just flown in from Westminster. When the Bostonians built the Old South, they copied the design from plates in a book by the British architect James Gibbs, showing towers and steeples in the Empire's capital. Even the layout of the streets resembled London's. Neither place bothered with a neat rectangular grid like the one at Philadelphia. Instead, they clung to an old-fashioned model, spilling out on either side of long avenues parallel to the water's edge, with narrow lanes leading down to the harbour and a host of tiny courtyards at the end of alleyways. Just like London, the town had dense little wards, especially in the North End, filled with artisans and sailors and immigrants, and, and the destitute, like an American version of Limehouse or Wapping. Far into the 19th century, Boston still had a few colonial tenements spared by the frequent fires that swept away the old waterfront. Photographs survived to show us their appearance. Used as sailors' homes, they looked exactly like old wooden houses by the London docks that served an identical purpose until the Blitz of 1941. To his relief, the English visitor was soon emerged from the urban labyrinth. A few minutes' walk from the squalor of the North End, he would climb up a steep grassy slope and find a suburban idyll. There he might pause amid the grazing cows beside a mansion built of granite, one of only four stone houses in the town. From the top of Bacon Hill, he would gaze down across the open space of the common and think about what he had seen. Although Boston had features that he recognized physically, many things were strangely absent, and the customs of the town seemed very strange indeed. For example, there was nowhere on the street to cash a check. Boston had not a single bank. In the shops, he saw people buying the latest goods from England, but there was something queer about this as well. They did not pay the bill with silver coins. It was easy to find a drink. The town had 90 taverns, more or less. But ask for wine, and you might be disappointed. Everyone seemed to prefer hard liquor or a pint of ale. In a grocer's store, you might find a keg of Madeira, 
but for some odd colonial reason, the price was chalked up not in shillings and pence, but by the weight of barley that the merchant wanted in exchange. Now, all this is benign enough, but the newspapers in Boston were even more peculiar to British eyes. The town had no fewer than five, which was strange in itself. An English seaport of the same size would only have one. And if he picked up a copy of the Gazette, the Evening Post, or the Massachusetts Spy, our visitor from England would wonder what eccentric world he had entered. Every London newspaper filled its front page with advertisements. They invited the reader to plays, the opera, public balls, or displays of fireworks. They always filled the two, the two left-hand columns on every page of the newspapers were always invitations to advertisements of that kind. They offered him houses for sale or rent, or they listed a regiment of butlers, cooks, and footmen, all of them eager to serve. In Boston, the editors devoted the front page to politics and almost nothing else, bar an occasional sermon. While the British press closely followed the doings of Lord North and his colleagues, often they treated the affairs of state merely as comic relief. The Americans were as deadly serious. Their advertisements were very different too. At the back of a Boston newspaper, you would find, quote, a Negro wench, unquote, available for purchase, as many as 10% of the inhabitants were black, but you would look in vain for a major domo or trained domestic servants. Houses also seemed very hard to get. The streets were filled with able-bodied men, but no one seemed to be building anything. There was only one major construction site in 1772, a new church not far from the Borson Assembly Room at Fannell Hall, but apart from that, the bricklayers had little work to do. Everywhere, our visitors would see bookstores, one of them stopped with 10,000 books, but he would look in vain for public amusement. This was a town where a man could be mobbed for playing a flute on a Sunday. Boston had only a single concert hall in a room above a shop, but the clientele were mostly British naval officers and their friends, there to listen to Hyde and Bark or to throw a party on the Queen's birthday. The town would not have a theatre for another 20 years. A visitor from England might simply dismiss the place as a provincial backwater, but if he asked questions, listened to conversation in the street, and kept his eyes open, he would soon find explanations for British Boston's peculiarities. Now, that's the section I'm going to read. Now, the point of this is, is, is really two or threefold. Um, first of all, what this is based on is, is literally having worked through the newspapers of the period, the, the, American, the, the Boston newspapers, and also worked on every source I could find, essentially, to create as, as accurate a picture I could of the way that Boston would have appeared as a man walked up the long wharf. Um, and everything in here, as I say, is, 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 is based essentially on that. Now, when I referred, for example, to the, to the, uh, the Boston State House, it might have come from any harbour town in eastern England. That's absolutely true. Um, it very close. Boston appeared to quite a close resemblance to one town in particular, which is Kings Lynn. Uh, now, Kings Lynn is largely built out of, out of stone and brick. Um, didn't have the same number of wooden buildings as, 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 as Boston, but Kings Lynn was actually very similar. The church, again, the church, the Old South Meeting House, does buy an astonishing resemblance to the, to the um, St. James's Piccadilly. Ditto this question of the old wooden houses by the docks. Now, that, again, this is quite right. This is, uh, there are photographs that survive. In, in London, we're very fortunate that the London County Council, before the Second World War, before the Blitz, actually, as a matter of policy, photographed a great many ancient buildings and historic buildings in London, which means that we have an extremely good record of the way London actually looked before the Second World War, thanks to these London County Council archives. And when studied, they do bear a quite extraordinary resemblance, these houses, to the houses that you can still see in a few photographs that are preserved here in Boston. 
Not as many photographs have been preserved, sadly, in Boston. Uh, it wasn't the custom in the 19th century, at the time when, when fire was devastating the town, at the time of the building of the railways, at the time of all the, the clearance that went on in Boston. It wasn't the custom to take, make that kind of photographic record. But nevertheless, these things are similar. And ditto the newspapers. I made a huge amount of use in, in this book of, of contemporary newspapers. Um, I think historians tend to be wary of using newspapers as sources for fairly obvious reasons, which is the information in them isn't always accurate. Um, but in fact, of course, they can be immensely revealing and immensely useful in terms of defining what attitudes were at the time and also, as I say, in reconstructing exactly the physical appearance of the streets. And all these details here essentially come out of newspaper advertisements and the American press. We're particularly lucky also in Boston, which is that we have the annotated newspapers, which are in the Massachusetts Historical Society. These are the, you may have heard of them, the Harbottle Door annotations. Harbottle Door being a, a Boston tradesman who collected newspapers, as far as I can see. And one thing was he also annotated them. He wrote little notes in the margin, you know, fuming about the British and this kind of thing. But these annotated newspapers survive in the, in the Massachusetts Historical Society, and they again give us this kind of picture. But, of course, this is just a matter of idle curiosity. The whole point is here there was a genuinely huge cultural divergence. The reality was that Boston hadn't drifted away from the, from, from the British Isles, uh, from Britain. Now, that wasn't necessarily true in some of the other parts of the 13 colonies. I mean, there's a strong argument for saying that in some parts of the 13 colonies there had been a kind of cultural convergence that places like Philadelphia and New York had actually become more anglicized. But it wasn't necessarily the case in Boston. And what I argue in the book is that the fundamental problem in Boston at the time was, the fundamental reason why the revolution had to happen essentially was because Massachusetts desperately needed to have a manufacturing economy. And this is one of the key arguments within the book. If you look at all the various things I discussed about Boston, the, the various aspects of Boston which, which would have been strange, strange to an English visitor, for example, the lack of a bank, for example, which British would have found very strange indeed because in London there had been a surge in the creation of new banks during the 1750s, 60s, and 70s. There was something like about 70 private banks. That would have been found very strange. But the common theme of all this really is that Boston to English eyes would have looked not only provincial, but it would have looked slightly backward. And principally it would have looked slightly backward because it was not yet a manufacturing town. The defining feature of London as a place really in the 18th century, one of the most defining features of it, was that London itself was a huge center for the manufacture of high-quality goods of all kinds, whether it be furniture or whatever it might be. And that was the nature of London at its time. That was the reason why London was developing as it did. It's a high-wage economy, effectively, full of skilled craftsmen. And this is simply what Boston wasn't at that time. There were some school craftsmen, of course. Paul Revere was a highly skilled craftsman. There just weren't enough of them. The difficulty was that Boston hadn't yet developed a manufacturing economy. Now, it was absolutely essential, I think, that they should do so. Uh, it was absolutely essential that in the next 50, 60 or so years that Boston should develop a manufacturing economy, and it did, whether by textiles and also the things that went with textiles, the digging of canals and so on and so forth, because only by doing so that Boston could develop as it needed to and that it could turn intellectual capital into wealth that could be spread among the population. That being the other great defining picture of Boston, the huge amount of intellectual capital that it had. And my feeling about the revolution is in many ways the revolution occurred simply because Boston had an excess of intellectual capital. It had Harvard College, of course, just up the road. Uh, it had excellent schools, had a highly literate population. That's something we can see from the number of bookstores and the sheer number of newspapers. Highly literate, highly educated, used to a tradition of three thinking dissent, and some of the, and, and I was discussing the gestation of Unitarianism, that's clearly an aspect of that. 
But what it clearly needed to do was to take this and turn it into actual material wealth, which was essential for them. Otherwise, they were going to be doomed to decline, which is already occurring. They were going to be continually left behind Philadelphia and Charleston and, uh, and New York and so forth. So that was absolutely essential. And what I go on to say is this. I say that... You know, yeah, the town of Boston needed to reinvent itself as the great industrial city it would eventually become after the war of 1812. Even before the revolution, it contained men and women who understood that this was so. Whatever it lacked by way of banks and silver, Boston never suffered from the dearth of human capital and intellect. On the contrary, the, contrary, the town possessed them in abundance. Apart from its bookstores, it had excellent schools, the rate of literacy was higher than in England, and of course it had Harvard College just up the road. It might be argued that the revolution began in Boston rather than anywhere else because its citizens had to solve a chronic problem of unemployment. A town that combined the maximum of talent with a minimum of opportunity, it created far more energy than it could use and too much for the empire to accommodate. In the North End, with its men and boys in search of labor on the docks, this was very obvious, but the problem extended up the social scale. In every generation, Boston gave birth to a surplus of talent made up of men and women educated beyond the careers available. Many decades earlier, the greatest Bostonian of all, Benjamin Franklin, had to leave to seek his fortune elsewhere. By 1772, the problem was acute, as the town failed to grow to absorb the skills its offspring had acquired. What did a boy or a young man do when he left the Boston Latin School or graduated from Harvard? Try as he might, he would find it hard to fulfill his aspirations. Careers might be available in the law, the pulpit, or medicine, but in Massachusetts, people lived very long lives by European standards. Every niche was occupied by older men or by the friends and relatives of Thomas Hutchinson. In every stratum of society in Boston, from the very lowest to the wealthier, we can see the same phenomenon, a persistent lack of opportunity. Too small, too poor, and too reliant on old ways of earning its keep, Boston needed to shake itself loose and kick away the empire. Until it did so, the town could never hope to expand and prosper in the way its people deserved. And I think there's a very simple way to, to illustrate this. I mean, the simplest way, if anyone asked me, what would you, what's the best way, what, is, what are the best uh, sites in Boston to see the revolution, as it were, in gestation, I'd say, well, what I would suggest you do is simply start at Paul Revere's house uh, in the North End and then walk up to the top of Bacon Hill. And in the course of doing that, you will be moving from the Boston of the 18th century to the Boston of the mid-19th century. The area around Paul Revere's house, although, of course, sadly, so much has been demolished, the area around Paul Revere's house effectively still has the same pattern of streets that it had. When one studies uh, the Boston of the 1770s from contemporary, you can see that those street patterns are still exactly as it was. When you walk up to Bacon Hill, of course, you're seeing something completely and utterly different, a completely different uh, its form of architecture, a completely different grid pattern. And that's an indicator of just how much Boston needed to change as it did over the next 50 or 60 years, which ultimately is what I think the revolution was fundamentally about, really. And one of the things I was very struck by, uh, as I'm just closing now, one of the things I'm very struck by in looking at the Tea Party was this. Um, I spent quite a lot of time trying to create an authoritative list of the participants in the Tea Party. Uh, various people have tried to do this over the years, and it's, it's difficult. It's difficult because the existing lists from the 19th century are in some cases defective or unreliable. It's difficult also, of course, because the participants deliberately kept their identity secret. And it was regarded almost as a matter of honor that those entities would be kept secret, so they went out of their way almost to prevent us finding out. But the reason I wanted to do this was not sort of purely from academic, antiquarian, or genealogical interest, because I wanted to get at the identities of the Tea Party participants so that we could see what they then did later on. Because if we can see what the men of the Tea Party did 
40, 50 years down the road, then we can get a sense about what the, the event was really all about and what they were really intending from the very beginning. You see, the average age of the Tea Party Raiders seems to me to have been around about 27 or 28, which means that if they lived to a normal lifespan by New England terms, given that longevity in New England was rather better than it was in, in the United Kingdom, then they'd have been still alive, what, 42, sometimes 50 years later, well into the 1820s and 30s when Boston was in the process of becoming an industrialized city. And indeed, I did find that this was the case. It is possible, actually, to look at some of the members, the men who, who we know took part in the destruction of the ships and find them becoming pioneer industrialists 30, 40, 50 years' time. Indeed, in some cases, having the misfortune to go bankrupt as pioneer industrialists because, of course, the 1820s, when the industrialization was beginning, was a period when actually the economy was extremely volatile. But I found that actually quite a fascinating um, aspect of the story. Now, sadly, like many other people, I'm always going to give up eventually on the, on the notion of coming up with an authoritative list of the Tea Party participants. It's something that requires a kind of collective endeavor by a whole number of scholars to get at it. But it is something which I think is, uh, is quite crucial. Now, I'd like to leave it there um, and just, just to leave you with one thought. It always seems to be an interesting question, exactly how different a place America would be if the revolutionary, if, if the revolutionary movement had not occurred, if America had parted ways from the United Kingdom in a relatively peaceful fashion. I wonder just how different America might be. That's something which, in a sense, is beyond the scope of this book, but it's always something that I'm left, is left in my mind as I contemplate this particular period. So thank you very much, and I'd be delighted to take any questions.